when uh, bad Christians happen to good people. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, there's, a, truth has a, a humorous, ironic quality to it, and I just love it. And, and uh, I thought about that kind of phrase, and I twisted it in my mind because of what I've been thinking about all week. And I thought, um, when bad churches happen to good people. And that's a reality, um, too, and it's a sad reality. And being a church planter, I'm always thinking about church and the, the fear of being a bad church happening to good people, like, just scares the tar out of me. And, and I just I don't want to be that. And so, especially with the three-year anniversary last week, um, just really been trying to think through. And, and the elders met on Friday for lunch, Baja Fresh. Um, if you were here last week, I said I was going to preach a sermon that might get me fired. I didn't want to get fired, so we met for lunch. Uh, make sure I wouldn't get fired. But the, you know, to realign regularly and routinely with what God intends for the church. Like, I feel like I want to be committed to continuously reinventing Antioch, not to be novel or because we just get bored or something like that, but to keep realigning it with what God has for the church. Um, is that okay? Are you okay with that? If we just commit to continually realign that way? And I, I just don't want to be a bad church happening to good people. And, and so we're not perfect, so we're going to always struggle with that, right? And you know what they say, um, if at first you don't succeed, well then maybe skydiving isn't for you, so. Um, uh, hey, Justin, is Justin even in here? No? Justin's not in here? I'll talk to him when he comes in, if I see him. Okay, um, I'm hoping maybe, maybe you can just tell him, Josh, I'm hoping maybe we can sing that in the desert song uh, again after the special music. And uh, if, if you all agree to listen really, really well, maybe this will go faster. Because <laughs> um, you are responsible. Um, maybe we can squeeze in an extra song at the end, which would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? All right, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just commit this morning to you, we commit our lives to you, we commit all the mess and all the garbage and all the, the feelings and emotions and desires, and I just pray that we'd also have the fortitude to commit all the thanks to you, uh, that in all things we would have thanksgiving and that we would desire to praise you and know that, that you are worthy of our praise, not just in the good times, uh, but also in the bad. And I just pray that you'd speak clearly to us this morning, in Christ's name, amen. The, the interesting thing about church, last week I talked about church as corporation. As a corporation versus a community, as an institution versus a movement. You know, this week I thought uh, as an organization versus an organism. And then I thought I was getting cheesy and I better stop thinking about little ways of saying stuff like that. Uh, but when you jump in as an institution, it's really about what do you do? What do you do? What's the purpose? What's the mission statement? Um, what's the action? And I think we do that really well in the Christian world. We, we don't talk about where we came from, and we don't talk about where we're going. We just jump in and say, I, I got some great stuff for you to do. Here's what you should do with your life. Or church, we don't talk about where it came from, really what's going on, or even where it's going. We just jump right in and say, sweet, we, we got some great stuff for you to do, some killer stuff. And we, we never really get the context or the identity. Does that make sense? And when we start at the beginning, every story has an introduction. What's going on? Where is it? In a, in a galaxy far, far away or, you know, that kind of an idea. Like, what's the context? Where am I? What's, <laughs> locate me um, so that I can orient the characters so that I can get into the plot line. And, and our own story, our own narrative as people, we do that. It's like, where am I from? Where's my family from? Who are my parents? Uh, what, what context was I born into? Like, what, I, I want to know my identity in some sense so that I can figure out who I am and what that means and what I'm supposed to do. And, and the context really matters. And when we do the institutional thing, we kind of create, we're tempted to create the context. We, we jump right in and we're like, what would be a cool sounding mission statement? Not too long, not too short. Got some cool words, not too cliche, but, you know, wouldn't this be neat to come up with a nice little jingle of a mission statement? And then, ooh, that's what we're going to do. And what I began to realize is, in America, you can incorporate anything. Um, Neil Cole, 
can incorporate you with any kind of business you want, like in one week. He's on the elder board, and we always call him for legal stuff. But it's amazing. You just fax in papers to the state, and now all of a sudden you're a limited liability like company. You're incorporated, and you can, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can sell this. You can do that. Whatever business plan you come up with works. If we just incorporate churches and get all giddy about it, and we don't understand the context, and we just come up with mission statements, we can come up with any business plan we want, and, it, and it'll in some sense work with the state. And, and if it, and if it like works or finds an audience, it'll succeed as a corporation, as a business. Here's the crazy thing about a, a body. The church is a body. It's the body of Christ. There's really only one way this will work. I mean, it's designed such that if all the pieces really aren't there in an interdependent way functioning healthily, um, that this body will cease to exist. The sky's not the limit. There's like one specific narrow thing that it has to be. And so when we get away a little bit from the business side of it, we start saying well, it's the body of Christ. Like, wow, okay, we don't have a lot of room here. We don't have a lot of room. And what we learn from that is we don't create church. We can, we can register them with the state. We can plant them in some sense into a community. But the idea of church, the context, where it came from, like we don't create that. Church is something that God created. It's his plan A. There is no plan B. And the whole context is, is I sent my son, and that way, like, he would be present in the body with the people that I care about to bring justice and, and to proclaim good news and to do all this other stuff. And so the word actually is incarnation, like in the flesh, Jesus is there, but, but he's limited. He's one guy when he's like that. He's not like the Spirit of God that, that somehow can go in different places, different times, but he's one guy that's going to live 50, 60 years or whatever. And so God designs a system where he passes on all that he knows to a group of 12, and then he's going to exit the scene, okay, so that the Holy Spirit can work through these guys to create the church, the body of Christ. So this, like, presence of God in Jesus is going to flow into this thing called the church, the body of Christ, where the church, communities of believers, become the incarnation. We are living out this Christ life in communities all around the world for people to see in the flesh. So, so that, I mean, it's just visible, and it's real, and it's tangible, and that's the context. So God says, I'm going to accomplish my mission through the church. I'm going to reach a lost and dying world through the church. We don't get to come up with a mission statement. Um, God already created the mission statement for something that belonged to him. We, and we're going to talk about it later, um, we have very little room in that other than to just say, uh, okay. Um, wow, that's a, that's a pretty tall order, God, but yes. Um, I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but we... We don't get to come up with the mission of the church. The problem with the church as a corporation um, is that we, we've, at least in the, in the last, in the recent history of the church, is that we can set that model up, that corporate model up, as a, there's different kinds of models, as an entertainment model, okay? Um, you're familiar with entertainment industries, right? Uh, there are industries, um, whole broad industries like movies and movie theaters or we could go down to the family fun center it's an entertainment those are entertainment models now what is the metric the key measure of success for an entertainment modeled corporation what's the metric what's what's the defining characteristic for success satisfaction satisfaction so if we set the church up along that model, um, the key defining characteristic will be that a great number of people would find satisfaction by their involvement or their engagement or their participation or their membership with that institution. Does that make sense? 
But if we're not getting to create the mission, what is the church created for? I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We have it on the screen for you. We can go to a lot of different verses. We're just going to do this one today. Um, And uh, I think we've got it up there. But it says this in Ephesians chapter 4. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. To prepare God's people for works of service. It's a really fascinating thing. The actual, literal, like earthy translation here of prepare God's people is actually the perfection of the saints. God gave leaders to his communities of believers so that um, there would be perfection of the saints. So that, that you could grow up into the fullness of Christ perfection of this, this growth kind of idea. Now, what's the crazy thing about that? Um, we'll just go on, and it says, for works of service, right? We'll touch on that later. We'll just stick with it for now. But for the perfection of the saints, for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. What do you think the model is for the church? If God created the church, and there's a model in some sense that that would be closer to this than the entertainment model, what would be the model or a model that you could point to? I simply think it's education. God gave leaders to work and to teach and to do and to um, involve themselves in people's lives that people would grow and become perfected. That they in turn would be qualified to go and do works of service, to, to do ministry, to perform tasks, to, to be good at stuff, and to use their lives meaningfully, right? So you're going to grow up and then in some sense be mature and go out. So if I, I've seen a lot of movies in my life, not as many as Kip, um, but Antioch, if you don't know, if you haven't been here since the beginning, we're a real movie-driven church, like, Started in a movie theater. Most of the leaders just veg out of movies all the time. Um, you can pray for us, whatever. We just like movies. Um, I've seen a lot of movies in my life. I stand here before you this morning absolutely um, without anything from any of those movies that has, that has helped me become a better leader, better teacher, better father, better, better husband. I, I have not been built to stand here this morning in any way, shape, or form by those movies. It, they didn't set out to do that, did they? It wasn't the purpose of those movies. They never claimed to do that. They, they only were aiming at me being satisfied, walking out happy that I, I was able to have popcorn or, or dial it up on my Apple TV or whatever. Um, but it has not contributed anything to my, my walk with Christ or my ability to perform my calling, my act of service, my ministry. I've had a lot of education in my life. A lot of you have too. A lot of who I am today is a, is a byproduct of that education. It's amazing, and a lot of you will have the same, the same experience, but you forget a lot of what you learn in, in classes or college classes and things like that. I don't really know anything about engineering anymore. I have an engineering degree and then I fake it when I go to lunches with people that are still engineers. Um, I know like a couple little words here and there and fake it. I don't remember anything about engineering. But engineering taught me problem solving. It taught me how to read technical books so that when I went into philosophy, like I could actually devour that stuff. It, it, it still changed me. It's what education is designed to do. Does that make sense? So God's given leaders to the community so that we would grow. It's an educational model. And and that as we're growing, we're going to go out and then be able to do and multiply that effect so that the body of Christ may be built up. And when it talks about the body of Christ here, it's talking not about Antioch. It's talking, this is is one of those places where Paul talks about Mostly he talks about the local church. Here he's talking about 
the invisible universal church, this, this idea of God called the church, of believers being connected to Christ, and it becomes in some sense an extension, his body, that that, that body is going to be built up, okay? It's going to be mature. And so as we do what we're supposed to do well, an educational model, people grow, they're able to go out and minister and build up the universal, invisible body of Christ. So what's the key metric for the church? What's the key metric for the church? It's education. It's growth. It's not satisfaction. We are here to pour in and build up for you to go. Not educate, pour in, and build up for you to stay. It's amazing. Jesus' 12 disciples, when I was a a kid, and I, I kind of first picked up on that, it kind of felt like um, a deflating concept. Like, I, I love the band of brothers idea, right? The three musketeers. But I think when I watched the movie, there was actually like four, and that confuses me too. But the, the, they all went different ways. It felt really anticlimactic to me. You know, the 12 didn't just go around like a posse, and like 50 people would attack them with rocks and stones, and the 12 would beat the 50, and you know, it wasn't like a good Western that way. Like, they didn't stay together. The camaraderie, the fellowship, the brotherhood. Like, they all went different ways. It felt really anticlimactic to me. It was what is supposed to happen. Jesus built these guys up so that they could go out and build up the body of Christ universally. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about their own little tight community, their own little tight fraternity. It wasn't about their feelings or their emotions. It was about them becoming perfected and then being able to be used by God to do God's plan for his kingdom. So the key metric, I would, I would say, is education. And when, when you think of that, I talked about last week, I began to think about my kids. They don't exist for me, man. When I got married and when I had kids, I began to learn something really quickly like you give up your life your life becomes about like serving others um i have no hobby like i, I rented a 50 dollars fight last night ufc fight with nobody else over to split the cost with me because I, I talked my wife into it because i said i don't golf so this is, this is like my only hobby like all i've got and it's really cheap if you look at it that way honey and so um so now that you guys know, I spend my, my money foolishly. Um, sweet. Um, <laughs> you get married, you have kids, your life exists for others, and you raise them up, and I haven't been there yet, but I'm already beginning to anticipate it. There comes a day when you push them out of the nest, and you say goodbye, and you say, go start your own family. Go lead your own life. Go create your own network and circle of influence, and I will continue to support you, but my work is done, and, and I'm taking my hands off. You can ride the bike now. Like, I'm, I'm off. And that's healthy. It's the way God designed it. Do you know that none of the churches that, that Jesus wrote to in the book of Revelation, even the ones he was, like, super stoked on, none of them exist anymore? You can't walk up to them and be like, wow, there's that church community. And here's the, the family tree of pastors going back 2,000 years. And, you know, like that church doesn't exist anymore. It, it didn't have to. Your family's not going to exist. Your, your, your lineage, your legacy will live on beyond you, but your own little house cannot list, uh, last for 1,000 years. Like it just can't. And the measure of success is that you embrace that. You raise up and send out mature kids. A Marine that's in boot camp for the fifth time. A doctor who's like got um, surgery for dummies open while he's doing surgery on you. Uh, Somebody that's in eighth grade for the 20th time, you know, you run a background check on him. Okay? Um, When you don't progress... In, in things where you're supposed to progress, something's broke. And if we create a model for church that says the, the key governing thing here is satisfaction, and if people are satisfied, 
just like bigger box office tickets, right, from a movie, we're going to see numerical growth, and they're going to smile, and I won't get as many criticisms. I'll get lots of nice little emails like, wow, isn't this a wonderful church? It's bogus. It's, it's, it's garbage. Um, it's crap. I, I've served under pastors before that took Ephesians 4. And they took building up the body as being their little local church. And then they took acts of service or ministry, meaning that you take and do volunteer work, no matter if it's not fun or not, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do work to build up this body, okay? Um, that they took the body this way, literally, and then your job this way. And I'm going to tell you what that job is. It's not the little whisper that God put in your heart. It's not that little desire you've had for years and years and years. It's this idea that I've got, and I'm going to crack the whip on you because your job is to do works of service to build up this church. There's a lot of great pyramids out there. We've built a lot of pyramids in America. The boomer generation is great at this because it's just a generational characteristic. You like to go big. You're builders. You like to go big. You like to build things. And you build and build and build, and you get this great pyramid. And then you're like, oh, shoot, what happens in like 20, 30 years? This building that's only fit for like church wasn't designed for anything else. And we put millions and millions and millions of dollars in it. Now how do we back up? You can't back up on that stuff, you see? Um, but this entertainment thing and growing and building and satisfaction and smiles, uh, it begins to subtly take you away, I think, from true north of what God designed the church for. Does that make sense? I'm not critiquing any specific church. I'm just saying we've got to be willing to ask some tough questions on a regular basis and not let fear get the best of us. Um, and I'm speaking about me and the elders here. What does that look like, fear, for me and the elders? What if Antioch started to decline? There weren't as many members. And budgets went down. And, and momentum went in the wrong direction. Like, oh no, that would feel really scary. So let's do everything we can to keep people satisfied. And I'm saying, and the elders said it on Friday, um, that's not good enough for the measure for us is education and sending people, healthy people, mature people, to impact this world. And if we have to go backwards someday, if we have to go backwards today, if we lose momentum somehow, if we don't please people, hey, that's okay. We weren't put here to entertain. We were put here to equip the saints for works of service to build the kingdom of God. So here we come to John. And the title of this message, Unless Antioch Falls to the Ground and Dies. John chapter 12. Jesus is grieved. He's coming to the end of his life. He's, he's coming to the home stretch here. He knows what his calling is. There's no secret that, that he's going to die. His, his disciples are playing catch up. But he kind of tries to slide it in every little bit. And he ends up saying this. In uh, verse 23, John 12, 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus is basically prophesying his death. He's like, look, I am going to die that others might live. The seed is going into the ground that many seeds or a bountiful harvest can come out of this one seed. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm, I'm coming and I'm going to die. Okay? And then he goes on and says, the person who thinks they're going to avoid pain or suffering 
or sacrifice to guard and preserve their comfort or their life based out of an animalistic kind of instinct, our, our mere base human worldly self. The person that thinks they're going to protect their life will actually lose it, but the person that understands what I'm doing and follows and loses their life will gain it unto eternal life. And then he says this, I am the master. The master's the top. It's, it's, it's as high as it goes. You can't go higher than the master. You've got, you got to be behind the master. If, if you don't know where you're going or the pace car on, an, on a NASCAR track or whatever, that's the leader. You can't go in front of it. You, you have to go behind it, you see. You have to be below it. And he's saying, I'm the master. I'm dying that others might live. So you because I'm the master, should also do this. Where I am, um, my servants will be also. If we say we're followers of Christ, someone says, well, where's Christ? You ought to be able to say, well, yeah, he's right here. Because I follow him. And it's not, it's not, well, Christ is busy doing something else. Um, but I had a good business plan. I had, I had a good investment opportunity. Um, I, I decided to just take a break for a while. I, I cruised off to the side of the road. Or took an, it's like, no, I'm following Christ. Where he's at is where I'm at. And Jesus says, I'm dying that others might live. That's why I came. Your life, according to God, ought to be about sacrifice that he can use you to change the world. It's fascinating in this, in this passage, if we look at the phrase, the man who loves his life will lose it. It's a typical NIV thing. The NIV, what I read out of, does a lot of stylistic changes. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to get a couplet going with um, we'll lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it. So they wanted to, to juxtapose lose it and keep it stylistically. The word here for lose it actually means to destroy or to perish. It's this like radical, intense word. The person who kills, who, who makes their life perish, that takes and burns up that whole animalistic self-preservation instinct, just takes it, rips the heart out of it, perishes, destroys it, that person who loses their life will then keep it. It's so easy for us to, to spiritualize things. Someone told me before the service, they have a new phrase, Oprahized it, or something like that. And I like Oprah, it's not a bag on Oprah, but... Do you know what I mean? Like spiritualize things, okay? Oh, the person who loses his life will keep, oh yeah, I lost my life. I now have a Bible, and it's a leather Bible. Um, and I don't hang out with the riffraff anymore. Um, I don't go to McMinimins and drink beer. Um, I'm a moralistic individual, and that's how I've lost my life. And frankly, that stuff's bogus and meaningless and legalistic in the first place. But we can so easily be like, oh, my life is great, but I've lost some things over there. I made a wise decision. Look how happy I am now. Um, I don't have the, the destructive, painful circumstances that come from not following God. I've kind of lived this sanitary life. It's so cultural Christianity. This is so cultural. It's not Christian, though. The word Christian literally means those who take the name of Christ, those who are followers of the way, and then the church of Antioch kind of turned it into this slang, Christians. Like, the word Christian literally means you go where the master went. And he's saying, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless you take that, that self-preservation, that build up your life part of you and kill it, other things won't live, and, and you can't really say that you're following Christ. Unless this church, as the body of Christ, is willing to follow this example and say, as a church, we are going to be a seed that falls to the ground and dies that others might live. We're, we're a sunflower that springs up and then just spits out all these seeds and then dies. Yet, all these things live, and we've changed the world. And if we, as a church are the vehicle, the educational tool to help you be perfected. How much more of a bar is there for the elders of this church 
to not just say those words, but to actually take the strategy of Antioch and strategize for Antioch to die. Um, we're not going to hoard. We're not going to put it all in storehouses for 30 years from now so that we got a, a big rainy day fund. We're not going to play it safe. We're not going to um, build the future so that 10 years from now we can be the biggest church in town. Or we're not going to do that. How do we build a strategy that says our goal is education? How do we do it the best way possible even if we die? Even if it's not a satisfaction getting plan. Um, here's the interesting thing. Jesus didn't commit suicide. He didn't commit suicide. He wasn't stupid. He didn't die for, a, for, for no value. You see, he was willing to take power and give it away is the kind of death he did. He voluntarily died for greater good. He sacrificed. He was martyred. Fascinating thing about people. You want to know why isn't the world a better place? Why are there so many wars in Africa? Why, 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 why? Because when people get power, they don't give it away. They, don't, they hoard it. They use it. They don't give it away for the benefit of others. Napoleon, Hitler, you know, they talked about thousand-year empires. If we have a church that plans for an empire, we're no better, really, are we? We get excited about the power and in, in the momentum and the control and the resources, and we just keep building, 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 and this thing can get bigger and bigger and more and more glorious and more and more glorious, and all the while we forget that the power that was given to us was meant to be used sacrificially, to be given away, to be handed over, that others might live, that this thing in some sense could die to give birth to things that would change the world. Jesus didn't commit suicide. It's a really interesting thing that way. Um, the, if you want to understand why this is, um, you know a roller coaster? You ever been to Magic Mountain, Disneyland, anything like that? You know what roller coaster? You get in it and you start going and they have to take you up because it uses gravity basically for speed as you're going downhill. So you go up the big hill and you know that if it's really steep, it's going to be a pretty killer, like, roller coaster and it starts pulling you up and you hear that click 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 you know what I'm talking about you know what that click is it's locking you in place so that that roller coaster doesn't go flying backwards it's it's each step you take it locks it in place and then it goes a little further and locks it in place so that something couldn't go wrong and that roller coaster go backwards we fight so hard to get ahead in life we work so hard, we labor, we, we, our emotions and our energy and our passion and our fear, and we put so much into getting ahead in life that we protect that. And we're not willing to go voluntarily backwards. Does that make sense? Why do people not give power away? Because once you finally got it, why would you let go of it? You worked so hard to get there. Antioch's three years old. Um, why would we do things that would maybe take us backwards when we've worked so hard to get here? That's the wrong question. The right question is, God, you've given us potential. How can we take this potential and push down on it so that actual energy, kinetic energy flows outward rather than more and more potential building up in the inside, storehouses? You know a balloon, those uh, kind that you, little animal things? Like, they always come undone in my house. Kids bring them home. They come unwound. But they, those things stay blown up for, like, weeks, you know, and just play with them. You, like, squeeze one side, and the air goes the other. You squeeze the other side, air. You know what I mean? It's really childish, but I'm, I'm tired a lot. The, you know what I'm saying? So we can design Antioch so that it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows in power and potential. Or we can take that and push down on it so that it flows outward unless one seed dies and takes the potential energy in it so that other things can become actual energy and life comes out of that. Unless that happens, the world will not change. Things will not grow, right? The kingdom will not happen. And Jesus says, so I, I'm showing you how this is done. 
So you do it, you do it too. Listen to what Jesus says. So he didn't commit suicide. Here's some verses. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. What does he mean by good shepherd? It means I use my position to bring about the best for the sheep. It's the whole leadership principle again. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Next verse is John 10, 18. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He didn't commit suicide, but he was obedient unto death. He did the most difficult of all things. He followed into the fire. Like, I'm voluntarily killing myself because it's part of God's plan. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. John 15 says this. Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. John picks up on this later in one of his letters, and he says this, um, and I've always laughed at the irony of this being in John 3.16 as well, but just in 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we, you, me, us, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Antioch ought to be designed to be a place where sacrifices are made for others to grow and be able to fulfill the calling God has for them in this world, to change the world. It's crazy, crazy stuff, but like it forces you to take your hands off a steering wheel. And, and you know what that emotion is? Like I take my hands off the steering wheel, my, my Jeep is so out of alignment, like I always have to hold it here so that it doesn't just go off, you know? Like if I take, I mean, that's the picture. If I take it off, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to hit that big tree right there. Right off of Brookswood, you know, bam. Uh, God says, not so. You leave the steering to me. You take your hands off the steering wheel and trust me with the health of my body. I will grow the church. I will take care of it. I am praying for its unity. You do what I told you to do. You take your hands off the wheel and you let me do the things like that. I told the elders Friday, I said, listen, um, I got to tell you something. You guys know part of this story. Part of the story is when we started the church about six months in, I told it to all of Antioch. I said, I would have always said God grows the church. What's the right answer? God grows the church. But the first six months, so many crazy things happened from left field. Couldn't have dreamed them up. Couldn't have planned for them. Couldn't have set them as goals. Couldn't have had it as vision. It was just left field coincidental stuff. And I was just like, you know what? I get it now. Like, God actually grows the church. Like, I would have said it, but now I get it. So I told the elders Friday, I said, listen, you know that realization. They're like, yeah. I said, well, here's what I think we do. I think we do all the things that make sense to do for a healthy, growing church. And then about every six month, God, months, God has done something radical from left field. And it reminds us, we go, <laughs> you know, we've been working really hard. We've been doing all this stuff, and here we go. Like, the growth has nothing to do with us. It's from you, God. Wow, it's so funny how we play this little game. You really are big, God. You know, and, and then we, like, turn around and we do all the things that we think we should do for a healthy, growing church. Like, it, it's up to us. And then six months later, God does the left field business Again, and we're like, oh, it's so nice that we get to see this and affirm that you're big, God. And what I told the elders is, when are we going to stop affirming that God is big and take that realization by faith and turn it into our strategy? That we just no longer do the things that, that we think we ought to do to build a healthy, growing church. When does that realization that God grows the church, we don't have to have our hands on us. When do we turn that into a radical, extreme different way of, of, of decision making. Um, and it's, it's scary that way. We got to take God seriously. Here's the crazy thing. Um, we get to heaven and God is going to look at the leaders of this church and he's going to say, what did you bring me? Like the parable of the talents? What did you bring me? And if we as leaders come before God and say, here's what we brought you, 80,000 people over however many years. And, and if Jesus' face turns sour and he starts just making a face like he's spitting them out of his mouth. 
crap. It's like 5% here that's worth anything. What did you do with your time? What did you do with this calling I gave you to, to grow up my people? What did you do as parents, as shepherds of that flock? Why did you allow yourself to just satisfy a lot of people over a, a lot of years and take all the accolades and now you've brought me this? I would, I'd already be dead, but I'd want to die again. I want to I get to, to heaven and I want to look at Jesus and I want to I say, here it is, it ain't much, um, but I've, I've been shoulder to shoulder with these people. And I've watched them grow from here to here to here. And then I did the very hard thing of taking my hands off and stepping back and sending them out. And there was a sense of loss, and I hated it. Um, I've, I've been there with these people. It's not much, Jesus. Um, it's the best we could do, though. It really is. I know it is. And I want Jesus to look at me and just say, um, you honored me. This is my body. You perfected the saints. You prepared them for ministry. Um, you did well. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I was listening to the radio and heard this cool study. Why do we have a hard time switching from an entertainment model to a... Uh, this clock is, says 10.15. It's not 10.15. I mean, does anyone have any idea what time it really is? Okay. We're, we've got tons of time. Um, why do we have such a hard time? There's a demon in that clock. It's really. Um, why do we have such a hard time switching away from an entertainment model? And so I heard this study, and it was a really interesting study done by some university in Minnesota or something like that. What they did is they let two sample groups, um, really cool coffee mugs. I don't know why coffee mugs, but it's just what they did. And they let one group touch and use the coffee mugs. And the other group just saw them, and that was it. And then they did an auction to where you can buy the coffee mug. And these people would never pay full price for the, the coffee mug, and a bunch of them wouldn't even bid on it. Okay. These people, 100% of them bid on the coffee mug, and a lot of them even bid more than what it was worth. And, and there's a more intricate study than that, but the conclusion is this. They called it loss aversion. It's, it's the roller coaster, roller coaster analogy. Um, they said once you've had something and you get a sense of ownership over it, we have this thing called loss aversion. We don't like to lose things once we've brought them into our little sphere. That's why we're pack rats. We haven't had a garage sale at my house in like a decade. Might need some of that stuff, right? Um, loss aversion. We don't like to go backwards. We like having our own way. We, that's why we like destroy sandcastles at the beach before we leave. Because we can't leave a piece of us there for the tide to just slowly kill. It's like a piece of us being devoured by the ocean. Like, I mean, you watch it. Like, the, you spend hours, your kids, building these sandcastles. Okay, it's time to go. You know, okay, I'm ready to go. You know, it, loss aversion. Loss aversion. So, hey, Antioch, uh, we're going to change the style. Oh, no, you're not. I got an email waiting for you if you do that. Um. You understand what democracy is? I have power, right? Um, that's why it's so hard to change because we, we get ahead of steam in a direction and we like it. What's another word for like it? Satisfied. Doesn't matter whether it's growing us or not, we like it. We don't want to let go of it. We don't want to lose it. We'll fight for it. Loss aversion. So here's two things we're going to do at Antioch. Um, do you know that Antioch has a mission statement? I wrote it like three months before Antioch launched. I don't even think the elders have ever even seen it. It's a crappy mission statement. I hated doing mission statements. I was like, I have to do this because it's a church plant. It has to be a mission statement. Oh, well, here's something that we can just put on the web. And, you know, and I left it. 
raise your hand if you've ever read Antioch's mission statement. That's my point. Like, see what I'm saying? Because um, it just never felt right. The mission statement of Antioch ought, ought not be, how can we come up with some creative, cool words to say what we're going to do because it'll make us look really good. Like, no, the church is really boring. It's been around 2,000 years, and it's not even our plan. Um, it's all about us submitting to God's plan. Okay, cool. Um, so we can't really come up with our own words. The answer is yes. God, I'll be a part of that plan. Yes, God, I'll commit my life to that. Yes. So what um, we're doing is we're, we're writing a manifesto that talks about the identity of the church, that it belongs to God, and our response to say, um, we're just saying yes, and we're going to couch it um, in terms of a prayer. And that's going to be our mission statement. Um, we're going to say, look, we don't get the right to have a mission statement, but God created this thing called the church. It's got a mission, and we're, this is our prayer, that we would be able to do a good job of living up to that calling. Um, so you're going to see that in the next couple weeks. We're, we're just not going to have a mission statement that way. Second thing we're going to do, it's kind of a big announcement. Um, we've been waiting. It's a good thing that there's a bunch of people sick because if there wasn't the flu, we'd really be hurting for seats this morning. So God inflicted sickness on everybody so that we would, we would fit at Antioch. Um, We've been waiting to go to two services, and, and all the church growth people tell us certain things about church services and second services and all this other stuff. And uh, we're not going to do any of it. So this is what we're, we're going to now do. Um, on an educational model, on an entertainment model, if you're going to have two services, what do you do? You, you change style. We'll have country western in one and rock and roll in the other, you know, or like we'll We'll, we'll do stuff that make the old people happy in one, and then we'll do stuff that'll make young people happy in the other, and everybody will be happy and satisfied, and it'll be great and wonderful. Um, that's a satisfaction-based decision. An education-based decision says, look, Antioch's this service is a high school education level. I'm making that up. I don't, I'm just guessing, right? Um, do we have anything above that? Yeah, we've got Kilns College. It's, it's deeper, and you guys should all be taking a class. It's great stuff. Um, if we're going to start another service, what do you think we should do? Maybe we should start something that helps people that are struggling, like, with doubts, um, that aren't yet ready to just jump in and take the Bible at face value or, or just hear a good old sermon, but they're wrestling, and they need to be able to wrestle. So we're going to start a second service that's all Q&A-based. Um, if you were here a month or two ago, we did a Q&A-based sermon. We're going to start a Q&A-based service, and it starts with the questions out there. It also gives me a chance to ask questions of the audience and get a dialogue going that way. Um, gives a free-flowing conversational ability for people to actually share a little bit of where they're at or, or what God's doing in their life. But it, it's relevant to answering the questions to a, a group of people at a maturity level, or, or they've been around a long time, but, man, they're just still hiccuping and the record's skipping. And it allows us to speak to those people. Why? Because education is linear. You go from second to third grade, fourth to fifth grade, you know, fifth grade to sixth grade. You know, you, you build. And some people can't jump in right here. And so, you know what? We can't probably get 300 people into that Q&A service. So there's not critical mass. Guess what? It doesn't matter. We're going to take like 50 people or 100 people, whatever. Well, you can't pass the offering bucket. It doesn't matter. We'll just put it at the back. And, and so we're, we're working on this, and we're going to have a team meeting this week, and we're going to design this Q&A-based service just because it is what we were called to do, to reach these people, to dialogue about these deep questions in a messy context that need to be answered. Um, so we're going to do that, not because it's this great church growth strategy, but because it helps us better accomplish the goals for which we exist. Um, and it means that we're going to need help. It's going to tax the system, and we've got to have a different kind of child care where we kind of cobble some people together, limited child care on Sunday mornings, and we need volunteers, and we need people to help with that, and we need, we need, we need, we need, we need. Um, but that's what we're going to do, and that's why. I, had a, I have a friend in the service, actually, right now. We dreamed last year about 
wouldn't it be cool to see how much God could change the world with a small church? Not a mega church, not a church of 10,000, but wouldn't it be cool to see what kind of a mega impact God could have with just a small church? I mean, I still hunger for that. I have a passion for that. And if we're going to change the world, I guarantee you this is how it's going to come. It's going to come from this church, the people in this church, all of us, sacrificing so much as if we're dying, we're, we're doing really stupid things, incoherent, paradoxical, like nonsensical, nonsensical illogical, upside-down things. But they're the things that push down on potential here and allow for the kingdom to spread out there. And we're sending people, and we're starting small groups. And if there's people that raise to a level of maturity that they need to teach, there's, no, there's nowhere to teach here, then we're going to start other campuses. Not so that I can project my screen on a video, but so that we have other places for, for teachers to teach. And we might have different campuses. Not a great church growth strategy. It's a great multiplication strategy. Um, at the bottom, my heart's desire for all of you is that you would live your life in such a way that if God at any moment called you and asked you to do something, you'd be able to do it. Your finances, your relationships, your desires would be aligned such that if God showed up one day and says, I want you to do this, you could just say, sure. And my desire for this church is the same thing. We have to live in such a way that if, if at any moment God says, this is what I want to do, the pillar of fire is moving and I need you to follow, you've got to go this way, that at any moment we're just like, yeah, absolutely, we'll redo the financial structure. We'll redo the strategy. We don't care if it kills us. We're going to follow where your spirit leads, God. Father, we just, we want words to be meaningful and we know that we're weak and so the whole, yes, I believe, help my unbelief statement comes in and it means so much to me right here and right now and and I just pray that you take this church, that you could shame the wise things of this world through this church by our ability to sacrifice and not even think that we need size or power to do great things. We just need faith. I just pray that you could shame those, those wise ways of the world through this church. Bless this church. Keep this church. Father, let this church radiate. We commit it to you. It belongs to you. We want to say yes. We want to join your mission. It's your idea. The context, the story, the introduction, it's all yours. Um, Father, just give us the ability to give it back.